welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers. I am Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. This is number 86, episode 15, 1986, Platoon. Platoon. Why don't we just dive right into it, Ethan? Why don't we just go straight into our plot synopsis? Platoon is the story of Chris, played by Charlie Sheen, a college student who drops out and enlists in the army. When he gets to Vietnam, he's shocked by the lack of idealism and purpose of the soldiers and the violence of the battlefield. The platoon is unofficially run by two hardened sergeants, Barnes and Elias. Barnes is more cynical and battle-hardened, while Elias is more sensitive and idealistic. Now, sensitive is relative here, but... (laughs) Chris gravitates towards Elias and his sort of liberals, pot-smoking acolytes, and throughout several encounters with the enemy, it becomes clear that the platoon is split between the two ideologies. After several men are killed in an encounter with the enemy, the men investigate a nearby village. Barnes is brutal, and he kills several villagers, and despite Elias's strong descent, they fight, he burns the village down. Many villagers are killed and raped, and the split in ideology becomes more pronounced. In a subsequent firefight, Elias takes a group of men and goes off on his own. Barnes finds him in the confusion and kills him in the hope that he will not be able to provide evidence that the village attack was illegal. Chris meets him right after the murder and realizes his guilt. Later, during a brutal and violent NVA assault, many men are killed. In the confusion, Barnes tries to kill Chris, but is thwarted by an explosion. Chris awakes hours later and finding Barnes vulnerable kills him. Because of his wounds, Chris is airlifted to a hospital and he knows that he's going to go home. So Barnes doesn't exactly kill Elias though, right? He shoots Elias and then there's that epic scene. It's actually the cover of the film Mm -hmm. with Willem Dafoe, which is Elias, his arms above his head, where evidently blood packets were supposed to go off, but never did. Oh really? Yeah, but they said that his performance was so good they just kept it. Yeah, I was waiting. I was waiting for the blood packs to go off, and I was kind of confused that it didn't. But yeah, so you're right. I guess I probably should have written that in that he doesn't quite kill him, and we see him running and being chased by Vietnamese soldiers, and and Chris sees this from the helicopter. Right, and this this is how Chris knows that Barnes meant to kill Elias because he's walking back and says Elias is dead, and Chris is like is he you saw him he's like yep dead and then you see elias running back and so he looks at barnes and knows the truth in that so that's sort of the critical Mm. turning point in that schism of ideology so let's stop dancing around it let's just talk about themes because this movie is heavily thematic but before i think we get right into it i want to at least give you the idea of the structure of this platoon yeah which is you've got the lieutenant up top he's ineffectual and he starts sliding towards Barnes's side toward the end of the film. And then he just goes apathetic and doesn't care at that point. But Mm -hmm. Barnes, which is Tom Berenger's character, he is a staff sergeant. So he ranks above Elias. Then you have Elias, who's just a sergeant, which is Willem Dafoe's character, which they had said was originally slated to be played by Native American. Couldn't secure one. Yeah. They were supposed to be this this spiritualist sort of Mm. element to it. And then you've got red who is the third sergeant who is in barnes's camp i've got to stop you right here for our listeners if you have forgotten matt is the military scholar or at least military narrative scholar matt is the one who knows the difference between a sergeant and a staff sergeant i know nothing about the military i 
barely can tell the difference between the army and anything else. <laughs> so I'm pleading a lot of ignorance here, and I'm going to lean very heavily on Matt's analysis. That kind of goes into one of my comments I have later, is that I forget how most people don't have the same grounding in this stuff. So there's a yes. lot of novelty that's in the film that just kind of goes past me because I've seen it all in that sense. But it's really mm -hmm. important to talk about those things. But let me finish up with this, and we'll get into the theme. So then you've got people in Barnes's camp, like Bunny, who is pretty much a psychopath killer, it seems like, mm -hmm. which is part of the message of the film. And you've got people in Elias's camp, the heads, as they're called, which are like the potheads. You've got Surfer yes. Dude from California. You've got Keith David as King, Forrest Whitaker, and then you've got mm -hmm. Charlie Sheen, which is the main character, Chris Taylor. So that's the setup. So Ethan, what's our first theme we should discuss here? I mean, I think anytime we talk about a Vietnam narrative, we have to talk about the senseless violence that is war. Mm -hmm. Like the sort of barrage and constant, the constant layering of violence, the constant stream of violent acts on both sides. Yeah, so what's interesting to think about with this is that the senseless is actually brought on by the overabundance of sensation is what creates yeah, the senseless. Yeah, the sensory overload. I mean, certainly there's sensory overload. The sensory overload leads to the senselessness. And about 20 minutes in, when Taylor, Charlie Sheen, and King, Keith David, are cleaning out the latrines where they're pulling out all of the human fecal matter in these mm -hmm. buckets, mixing them with gasoline, and then Matt, lighting them on fire. You can, you, you can say shit in this podcast. I, I, I know I can. <laughs> Uh, and sometimes they do. Maybe it's my job to say that. So they're cleaning that up, and you have the the narration in which he says, hell is the impossibility of reason. Yeah. So this is what you're talking about here, and the, the senseless violence, the senseless acts, where it all seems sort of pointless, which is situated in American history in mm -hmm. Vietnam for a very particular reason, because we have World War II not that far prior yeah. where it's the ultimate sort of morality war for people, where it's good versus yeah. evil, us versus them, Hitler's deplorable Nazis, and the Americans who are the light bringers, effectively. And then you yeah. get to Vietnam, and we sort of gloss over Korea in a lot of ways. You get to Vietnam, yeah. we are fighting a war that does not have traditional boundaries, does have mm -hmm. traditional tactics, and it's not about line them up and shoot them down, which America is very, very good at, or even about mobility. It's a body count war is what it becomes. We yeah. try to start measuring our success in body counts, which is a deeply flawed way to account for victory on the battlefield sure, when yeah. you've got a guerrilla fighting population. So absolutely. Yeah. When you think of senseless wars and you think of Vietnam, those two have to go together. And I mean, and this that's one of the things this film does very well is that sort of sensory overload where it's hard to tell who is who and who's on what side. I watched it this afternoon with my girlfriend and there were a couple of parts where I was like, are those, are those Americans or are those Vietnamese? And she's like, no, they're definitely Vietnamese. And I'm like, wait, I think they might be Americans. And she goes, nope, they're... And then they start shooting. And I'm like, oh, see, I don't even know who's who in this movie. It's the explosions, and you can't see anything, and it's loud, and there's this and that, and you sometimes you can't hear the lines. and Right, and that's part of it, I think, especially with yeah. Chris when he's on out on ambush, and he's sitting there, and he sees NVA, North Vietnamese Army, or Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell. They are I don't moving know the towards his position. So. <laughs> well, one are the guerrilla fighters, and one are the actual... Straight up army. So oh, the Viet Cong okay. were, were, were in North Vietnam, but they were also in mostly South Vietnam. You know, they had a, a complex tunnel system underneath 
South Vietnam, and you see part of that that Elias yes. goes into. And so the NVA is, think of it as your traditional army, and the Viet Cong would be like, you know, if someone invaded America, you'd have the army, then you have a bunch of people with guns. Right. So that's what they are. And he's sitting there, and he's trying to figure out whether they're effectively allies or enemies. Mm-hmm. You thought, you're thinking about this sensory overload in that last scene, or that last major battle. Yeah. This is around... I think it's 1968, which is important to yeah, the film because that's when the, the Tet Offensive happens. Oh, okay. So early in that year, that's when the Viet Cong all attack. It's really when the Viet Cong itself gets crippled because almost all of them die in that offensive. But okay. it really sort of okay. shatters America's idea that this is a winnable war through traditional means because enemies are coming out of the woodwork where we didn't know there were enemies. Yeah. So that's what this is. This scene's about, and they're they're in Cambodia, I think, or near Cambodia when this happens. An interesting tidbit: yeah. Oliver Stone was in this battle that he's depicting here in this final scene, and I know that because my friend and mentor Larry Heineman was in that same battle. Oh my god! They were in the same battalion in a different company, I believe. Holy shit! Wow! But you see that bulldozer yeah. at the very end of the film burying those bodies. He has a story about that. He's never told me about the battle itself, but he's told me about the aftermath. And he said they spent all day burying bodies like lasagna, where they just have a, a row of bodies, and then quick lime, then bodies, then quick lime, and oh. it's just a very powerful image. And so he's a part of that that sort of uh, sensory overload, so to speak. And he, yeah. you know, self admits to have been in, on a lot of drugs at the time during during those very fights, and make that even more surreal. Oliver Stone or Larry Heineman? Larry Heineman. Oh, okay. They were uh, called OJ's, which were opium soaked marijuana cigarettes <laughs> so you can imagine the sort of oh, uh, headspace people had to yeah. be in during those fights i know that the bulldozer what my girlfriend and i were watching and that was the part where she was like oh my god i mean it was like a, it's a it's an unsettling moving and i and i think i want to say this also that i had seen this movie before right one of the few films i've seen before <laughs> but i had seen it when i was 14 and at 14 i thought wow these action scenes aren't very good which yeah. is kind of crazy to think that. Well, this is important because this is a film that, you know, especially if we're thinking about 1986, this is action movie territory, you know, mm-hmm. in the 80s. You've got all you've got a lot of action movies that come out and so this is one of those that sort of flips that over and says this is an action movie but it's not good it's not good in the way that the war itself, right, is not what we would call a good war. Right, this is part of the main thrust of the film itself. And you yeah. see this in the brutality, not between simply between Americans and Vietnamese, but Americans among themselves. Yes. They refer to each other almost exclusively as motherfuckers or shitheads. Mm-hmm. So it's just... Fat Fox was a good one that I liked. He's like, right. fat fuck, get up there. <laughs> so it's all just degradation and yes. denigration, I think is what's being illustrated. And that's what Stone's trying to do is just show people... This is the worst of, that Vietnam has to offer. Chris has that monologue where he says, like, we're, who are we fighting? We're not even fighting the enemy. We're fighting ourselves because of that big ideological split. I mean, he mm-hmm. explicitly says we're fighting ourselves. Right. So I saw this at 14 and thought it was, like, not very good action movie. And then seeing it now <laughs> over a decade later and just feeling kind of sick about it and just saying, like, mm-hmm. wow, like, even as, as much how much familiar I am with this stuff. It's still very unsettling to. Oh, it's very unsettling, it. and it's it was. I mean, it's it's a two-hour movie, and it's mm-hmm. 
That last big scene where just everything is happening, that, that big assault, I was sitting there and I said out loud, I was like, how much more can there be of this? How much more, you know? And I had maybe 15 minutes left and I was like, I, okay, I, could, I can hold out 15 more minutes, but not much longer. This is the whole thing of the film, right? It's trying to throw all of this in your face because mm-hmm. this should be a very rare experience for someone in Vietnam to have all of these terrible things happen to them. Yeah. But each of these individual things happened on their on their own, you know, one mm-hmm. by one. Someone falls asleep on ambush and people get killed. So one of your officers is fragged, which is friendly fire and killed. Mm-hmm. Same Same friend, Larry, talked about how people in his squad were seriously talking about slipping a hand grenade in the lieutenant's pocket because he was putting them out in dangerous positions and so it was sort of a pragmatist utilitarian sort of calculus this is all wrapped up in the film for us with people like barnes these -hmm. people who are that extremist sort of pragmatist which is kind of a weird thing to say but they need to do the brutal things they think in order to get Mm -hmm. people out alive Right. And then you have people like Elias who says, look, everyone's in a bad spot. We're just trying to get through it. And Elias is no stranger to bloodshed, right? He kills right. before his final scene. He kills like 12 people. But he does it in a way that's far more, I think, thoughtful in a strange way where he is doing yeah. this because he's trying to make the best of it. Where people like Barnes say, you need to revel in it if you want to get out of here. And you can see it in their sort of their acolytes, right? The, there's Bunny who follows Barnes who beats that that poor kid who's it's i think uh, my understanding was that he's mentally handicapped and i think he I doesn't have a leg correct, yeah no he's one-legged right yeah so he beats this kid to death and then is like he's like look at all he's like look at the brains da, 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 da. and then you see this sort of like pot smoking homoerotic sort of like we're all in this together elias camp people you know, and, and Chris, of course, who's in Elias's camp, who's, you know, writing letters to his grandmother the whole time. I'm glad you mentioned the sort of homoeroticism that's going on mm-hmm. in Elias's camp, the heads. They're listening to music, dancing, dancing with each other because they're transgressive, right? There's this mm-hmm. good parallel scene where you see Barnes's camp, what they do, and they yes. gamble and they talk. And so they're not, they're all deplorables, but you're supposed to see by the traditional Method. You're supposed to see Elias's camp is far more deplorable because they're over there smoking illicit drugs and dancing, yeah. which is just kind of a, a weird image, I think. But you still are endeared to them. Yes, definitely, right? Like, well, and that's I think that this is sort of the this maybe helps us get into my next sort of theme, which I, on paper, it's very simple. It's good versus evil, but I think we can't think of it as a good versus evil in the traditional sense. It's very nuanced. It's a, it's sort of a real grappling of what is actually good and what is actually evil, and there and you get conflicting vibes, right? Like if you're thinking about the Elias camp, yeah, they're doing some crazy shit, and there's that shot where Elias lifts up the rifle, cocks it, and it's a very sort of like right in your face, you know, it's direct. He's looking straight into the camera, his face is right there, and he tells Chris to put it in his mouth. And he puts the barrel of the gun in his mouth. He says, put your mouth on this, yeah. And then he, you know, he lights up a joint or something and then blows the smoke through the... Um, the barrel. The, the Well, yeah, through the barrel, right, into Elias, which is a very clear homoerotic image, I mean. Except for the one thing, where it's not a rifle, it's a shotgun. So Chris is shotgunning the mm. drugs, which is where that term comes from. Oh, I thought it was a rifle. Never mind. 
Nope, it's a shotgun. This is how little so I know he, about guns. <laughs> because he pulls back the the slide basically to to reveal the the interior of the barrel. Right. And that's how he that's how he does it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a very heavily homoerotic scene, and I think that gets towards the idea of brotherhood and pragmatism. I can't recall now, but there is a tribe that the men who are all warriors would have actual uh, sexual relations with each other oh, because yeah, it would was... strengthen their ability to care for one another and defend each other in battle, you know? I was just reading about this, actually, in this women and gender studies class I'm taking, this feminist theory class. And yeah, there, there are these tribes, and they the men are really only interested in having sex with the women because you need to procreate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you need to dominate the women. But the rest of it, all, all the sex for pleasure is between other men and so i think you see that and so that what, what i guess what i'm trying to get at is that there is a sort of like it's weird because what they're doing is transgressive right but at the same time they seem to i would much rather be in their camp than in the you know jack daniels drinking beard guzzling you know you're a pussy bitch card playing sort of thing you know what i mean like that's a much more hostile Country environment music listening to that actually says in the first lyric you hear in their campus, we don't smoke, smoke marijuana is the line yeah. in the song. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about this because Barnes rules by fear. Mm-hmm. People don't l- listen to Barnes because he is a good leader. They listen to him because he's been through the shit, as they would say, and yeah. has come out, not unscathed, but has been beaten down by it, but has survived. So they think he's invincible. Yeah. And he, he rules by fear, whereas Elias rules by love and the yeah. bonding of you know men, which ultimately I think we have to talk about Chris's arc, yeah. Charlie Sheen's arc in this, because at the end of the film, he's, you know, he's very conflicted. He sees Barnes and he admired Barnes when he first came in. Mm-hmm. And then he admires, grows to admire Elias and Elias dies. And then he has this vendetta against Barnes. And then, Barnes tries to kill him at the end, mm-hmm. but before this, Chris kind of flips, and he is in that big firefight, and he runs out and yells, it's fucking beautiful, and mm-hmm. runs off into the bush, uh, shooting people, and he yeah. bashes someone's face in with a rifle shot, sure just like Bunny does, and mm-hmm. then Barnes tries to kill him, and then the napalm drop prevents him from doing so, Chris wakes up. What looks like the next morning, yeah. gets a gun, finds Barnes crawling away. Barnes says, get me a medic. And then he shoots him, shoots yeah. him dead, just like Barnes shoots Elias dead, right? They have the same sort of parallel structure. Yeah. Does Chris succumb really to the Barnes mentality or is this justice? I, I would say this is, the, this is the thing I think with Chris. Chris begins and he says earlier in the film, you know, he, he says to one of the guys, I think, it's either that or it's in a monologue where he says, you know, I went to war because I felt like, you know, I needed to defend American freedom and do my two cents. And it shouldn't just be the poor people that get, you know, forced into this. We should have to, like the middle and upper class should have to pay our dues as well. Right. So one important thing to say about this real quick is that Chris himself is upper class. You can see he's also white, whereas Mm -hmm. most of the people in his platoon are black or Italian or Mexican. So it's very very representative actually of vietnam war era soldiers and and i wouldn't be i would mean i would would not be surprised if you know this is still sort of one of the things that happens right you have younger you've young poor people and and minorities that go to to the army and to the military in general because you know it's a means for status 
It's a means for, uh, you know, obviously money, but also a means to, to climb up the social ranks, right? Because of things like the GI Bill, more so in the 60s, but... You're absolutely right. In Vietnam, soldiers came back, a lot of them were treated very poorly and didn't receive benefits like right. they should have. We're a lot better about that today. I'm the project manager of a veterans group, basically, mm -hmm. where we get veteran stories and talk to them and get them to express themselves on their terms. Yeah. One thing we see a lot is honor. Honor gets thrown around all the time. Why'd yeah. you enlist? Honor. Honor and duty. So status in terms of honor because everyone now respects soldiers yeah to an almost fanatical degree yeah and i think this is something that you know politicians use this all the time right the the soldiers the soldiers for both you know for sort of lots of different uh political plans or whatever because you know no one no one is begrudging the work the soldiers do right regardless of what you know whatever sort of partisan politics you believe in the people that are doing the work are, are you know are making noble sacrifices now what they're being forced to do that they have no control over may or may not be good or bad and that's neither here nor there but well maybe it is here or there because we're talking about the fucking vietnam war right like it is here or there right because we have that scene where they go and torch the village mm -hmm. which is a parallel scene to history in which we have the my Lai massacre mm -hmm. where this almost becomes a my Lai massacre yeah exactly tensions are high they've already shot the animals they are getting ready to murder the whole village until elias shows up intervenes knocks barnes down and says you're crazy and this is where the lieutenant has already become in barnes's camp yeah. and this is right before he makes that tip to apathetic and lets barnes just sort of have free reign and and even even then he gets to burn down the village he doesn't get to do this sort of carnage maybe he wanted to do but you know chris comes in and stops them from raping that young girl based on an actual experience of oliver stone where he did the same wow i mean it it's just a lot of it's a it's heavy shit man if people aren't familiar with the kind of seminal vietnam writers you've got larry Heinemann, you've got tim o'brien phil caputo all of these people had these experiences and you actually see in a lot of their fiction you, you find very very similar scenes to this i mean i thought that i thought exactly that the you know all of because i've read quite a bit of tim o'brien and you know even just seeing uh what's what's kubrick's full metal jacket and i think i've seen some of apocalypse now but i haven't seen the whole thing i mean there these these themes or not even themes they're really sort of i don't know narratives or tropes that you see over and over right like young idealistic men come in they you know there's ideological splits people die you know you go there's a village burning scene because of the mile i massacre well Ethan, we should save this for our three questions i think yeah we should why don't we go to our pivotal scene yeah because our that. pivotal scene is is what this this thing we're sort of moving around right now which is chris's fate right the mm -hmm. battle for his soul as they say in the film and this scene is after Elias's death. This is where Chris is saying to the other heads that Barnes did it. And they're sort of plotting or talking about the merits or demerits of killing Barnes. Then Barnes is right there and has heard everything. Yeah. So let's give it a listen. He killed him. I know that he killed him. I saw his eyes when he came back in. How do you know the dinks didn't get him? You got no proof, man. Proof's in the eyes, man. When you know, you know. You were there, Ron. I know what you were thinking. I say we frag that fucker tonight. I go with that. Knife or knife. Oh, I say let military justice do the job on him. Come on, fuck the military justice. Are you joking me? Whose story do you think they're gonna believe? O'Neill's? Bunnies? Wolves? Bullshit! Shit, man, you try that, and Bones will shove it right back up your ass with a candle on it. 
Well, then what do you suggest we do, huh? I suggest y'all watch your own asses. Because Bond's going to be coming down on all of them. You just going to forget about Elias and all the good times we done had right in here? Shit, you're trying to cure the headache by cutting off the head. Elias didn't ask you to fight his battles for him. And if there's a heaven, and God, I hope there is, I know he's sitting up there drunk as a fucking monkey and smoking shit. Because he's done left his pains down here. You're wrong, man. Anyway you cut it, Barnes is a fucking murderer. Right on. Taylor, I remember when you first came in here telling me how much you admired the bastard. I was wrong. Wrong? You ain't never been right about nothing. And dig this, you assholes, and dig it good. Barnes been shot seven times. And he ain't dead. Does that mean anything to you, huh? Bonds ain't meant to die. The only thing that could kill Bonds is Bonds. Talking about killing? Hmm? You all experts? Y'all know about killing? Well, I'd like to hear about it, potheads. You smoke this shit so to escape from reality? Me, I don't need this shit. I am reality. the way it ought to be and there's the way it is okay so i cut this scene off early where what happens after this is barnes says what do you know about death and then they actually get into a fight because chris actually attacks him and barnes makes it very clear that he's in charge of this platoon now right mm -hmm. he is the fate of this platoon which is a very unsettling thought if you're one of the heads who have that sort of tutorship of Elias you know previously mm -hmm. so this is where Barnes lays on the table that you don't know death like I do and he says I am reality yeah. so Barnes has sort of molded the world around himself yeah which is also kind of funny because he says I don't need that shit to like smoking and stuff but then he's like swigging Jack Daniels as yeah. he's standing there well and that's that was another really interesting sort of just to maybe circle back the dichotomy there they they all they you know the guys in Barnes camp deride the idea that they're all dope smokers down at the other camp, but they're 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 drunk as hell. They're guzzling Budweiser. They're guzzling Jack Daniels. They're just as intoxicated, just using a different method. Yeah, and so we're supposed to see with those parallel scenes is that there's no difference between these two. It's just that one they just have different philosophies, right? Their manifestations yeah. are the same. They're all they're all killing. They're all dying. Yeah, but their philosophies different yeah i think as the audience we're supposed to ask if you know does that matter yeah and i think this will get me to my thesis because i sort of talk about this in mind so i sort of harken back to that first line we hear early on war is inherently unreasonable right so hell is the impossibility of reason the only way to survive it is to succumb to it which is a paradox mm. in itself 
So there are no survivors of war in the truest sense because they've all been changed by it. True. Just as like there's that thing we talk about with, you know, Holocaust studies. There are Mm -hmm. no witnesses to the Holocaust because all of those witnesses that truly experienced the extent of the Holocaust were consumed by it. Yeah. So I think a similar thing can be said about Vietnam and really Chris Taylor as a character. He is a witness to this war, but he's also consumed by it because I think he does have this sort of fall from grace when he kills Barnes and it might be justice, but I think that's also commingled with this sort of really falling to Barnes's ideology that the way you get things done, the way you deal with results is to be a maker of death. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. So it is a ambivalent ending because like he says in the narration, he is a, a son or a child to both of these fathers so he's a product of Barnes, but he's also a product of Elias. And those things seem incompatible mm-hmm. and therefore ambivalent. And how can you be successful as either one of those things? He says he says the war will stay with him always. And sometimes he yeah. feels reduced, you know? Well, he says it's their duty to build and to, to teach what they know to others. But then you're right. He also does mm-hmm. say the war is over for him, but it will stay with him always, which is that traumatic... Mm-hmm impression of the past on the present the imposition of the past on the present rather which is what i'm really concerned with with narrative theory and war itself after being you know having done this a few years it is a messy messy situation there's very little optimism oftentimes but there is coping and sometimes that's all you can hope for but the movie ends on such an optimistic note where he says it's our duty to teach and to build and I, I am so skeptical of his ability to do so after going through what he went through. <laughs> yeah. Which is like all the worst experiences of Vietnam bound into one. There's rape. There's murder of innocents. There's murder of animals. There's burning down villages. There's uh, killing of your own friends. There's yeah. all the grisly firefights. It's, it's kind of every single Vietnam trope pulled into one. Right. Well, although, you know, the way – now that you've said that, I think about his sort of claim that he has to teach or whatever – and in many ways, you've got to think of Chris as an Oliver Stone stand-in. And Oliver Stone, I mean, for what it's worth, does... I mean, he made this movie, put that out there. And he continues to do things. He had war stories with Oliver North recently on History Channel where they told stories about different conflicts and tried to you know, bring the public public's eye to them and understand these things and why they happened and why these people are heroes and things like that. Yeah. So I guess Oliver Stone still is doing it in some way. And, and if we see Chris as a stand-in for him, I mean, yeah. There was something I wanted to say, but I forgot now. I think it was your thesis. Oh, maybe I should tell you that. <laughs> All right, here it is. And it wouldn't be our podcast if I didn't say that it's not my favorite. I'm going to stab you <laughs> through this computer screen. <laughs> Don't worry. I already... I'm going to shoot you barn style. Don't... You're Elias, I... and I'm just taking you down. I already stabbed myself in the leg like that character in... Uh... Francis. <laughs> yeah, Francis. Where he stabs himself That's... to get out. I'm going to do that right now. Hold on. Let me just let me get my knife out. Okay, now I can read it for you. I've made my penance. Okay, we'll first get a tourniquet on that, and then we'll... All right, let me just... Give me a second, and we're back. The Vietnam War is a conflict that reveals that America is not the war heroes that we thought we were, and in the senseless violence we find we must form and cling to our own created sense, or maybe invented sense of, of morality. Yes, you kind of have to cobble together from pieces of ideologies to make one that works for you in this 
very transgressive space of not just war, but an unwinnable war that does not conform to any definition of war, really. Yeah, and and again, just thinking about the sort of eighties action films that surround this, right? Mm-hmm. This is a film that I mean, unequivocally, the Americans are the bad guys. Like it's, I think it would be a very hard sell to argue that really the Americans are the good guys here. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like this is this is painting the American soldiers and their leadership in very bad light. Even the the captain at the end of the film calls down napalm on their own position, yeah. so they don't get overrun. But he's willingly committing all his men to death for this. But yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter in actual Vietnam probably a little more complicated. But yeah, absolutely, the Americans are villains in this film. And, and, and but the, again, it goes back to that idea where I, you know, I sort of put good and evil as a as a serious theme here but it's not black it's never black and white it's not nearly that quite black and white right because yes the americans here are the bad guys but they're the bad guys i mean the the soldiers themselves aren't i mean they didn't you know ship out to go rape and pillage on purpose you know what i mean many people were drafted and then the people that did you know purposefully do this you know like chris say i went to go fight for freedom they go for ideology and find out there's none to be found in vietnam yeah and so you're sort of forced into by you know virtue of politics and and whatever else you're sort of forced into becoming the bad guy and then you know as a viewer then you have to think like if americans aren't always the good guys if we are if we're actually doing harm how do we construct our own as a viewer how do you construct your own identity right like and this is a really very real question that american citizens had during vietnam maybe they didn't realize it as such but i always think of vietnam as a sort of post-lapsarian american ideology so post-lapsarian meaning fall from grace yeah right so we have the pre-lapsarian ideals in world war ii and then we get to vietnam people still think they're living that good moral high ground they go to vietnam and they find out there's no ideology there in a recognizable or sensible way right to use the senselessness again Mm -hmm. and so you have that fall from grace when you realize it and then you sort of do kind of succumb to it like i think chris does in a lot of ways even though he doesn't want to but he just you you have to you have to survive right yeah you have to survive and in order to find some sense of justice you have to be you have to become a murderer well, I don't even know if there's even justice. Yeah, so for justice in Chris's case. But remember, yeah. King tells him, look, just stay, just get out alive. There is no such thing as a coward here. Yeah. Right? So it's the suspension of our typical ideals for simple survival. And yeah. people can look down on that and say that's terrible and they can castigate it. They've never had to be in those situations. Mm-hmm. Right? So they get to have that idea or those ideals, in fact, yeah. that, oh, I would never do that because they've never been put in a position where they've had to. And the sense that I've gotten, and, and maybe you can either corroborate this or challenge it, but the sense that I've gotten from a lot of the Vietnam material that I've consumed, right, is that, and I'm thinking, really I'm thinking Tim O'Brien in particular here, uh, especially because I've also taught it. I feel like so much of some of the Vietnam storytelling has to do with, like, making a normal person see you know, or, or have some sort of effectual move on them to give them a sense of like, this is how fucked up it was. Like if you could even just begin to put yourself in that position, you would see that all the sort of negative press that the soldiers got, you know, coming back from Vietnam and all that, like is not deserved. Right. Because if you can even just begin to put yourself in that situation, if you can begin to learn 
what the war was like, you would do the same. I mean, Chris goes in a, you know, ideologically pure, good old American boy and comes out a fucking murderer, right? Like, mm-hmm. by means of, like, staying sane, trying to have any basic sense of justice. And, you know, for what it's worth, Barnes does deserve to, deserve to die. But at the same time, it, he was doing what he had to do. You know what I mean? It's, it comes down to ideology, right? So I have a lot of complicated feelings on this because, so as you know, Ethan, I wrote my thesis on Tim O'Brien and yeah. a bunch of the Vietnam War writers, both American and Vietnamese. And I think the purpose of that, of showing them the depravity of sometimes, but also the, the, the beautiful moments in Vietnam is for an act of witnessing. Yeah. Because they can never communicate that reality in that way. So what you get is you get a lot of Vietnam War fiction. Yeah. You get Larry Heineman fiction, Tim O'Brien fiction, Bao Nen, a North Vietnamese soldier fiction. All these fictive stories because they're trying to capture this reality that doesn't really exist. work for a yeah. reader. It doesn't really exist in the way that it did for them. Yeah. And so you have to make things up to get at the truth, which is a paraphrase of Tim O'Brien and yeah. the things they carried. Yes, definitely. So, well, I have to shut up about this, Ethan, because you know I'll talk for three hours <laughs> straight know. about these things. So what do you say we get to our three questions and let our poor listeners go? <laughs> Let's do it. Let us. Okay, so do we care about this film? Yeah, we have to. We have to. It's it's a very important film. It comes after things uh, that have already been done or written about Vietnam, but it also helps reinforce for the public eye that this is like sort of a seminal Vietnam War film. It is yeah. both a precursor and a response to a lot of Vietnam fiction. In fact, Tim O'Brien's Things They Carried wasn't compiled and and published until 1991. No, 1990. 1990, 1990, yeah, you're right. But a lot of his stuff had been published earlier in things like Playboy Mm -hmm. and things like that. So these stories already existed out there. But, you know, movies like Platoon made that possible to be such a acclaimed novel. Yeah. I think it holds a very important spot. I wouldn't call this the climax or apex of it. No. I think it's a very important spike on the charts, if you will. And I think this is interesting. Platoon, on the original AFI's Top 100 Films list, was number 83. But for the uh, anniversary edition, which is the version we're using, it went down to 86. Interestingly, you know, it sort of lost, maybe I don't know, clout? I don't know. Who knows well, I what... wonder, there's so many war films on this. We've got yeah. Saving Private Ryan, Bridge of the River Kwai, and of course you mentioned Apocalypse Now, which is mm-hmm. much, much higher on the list, which is also a Vietnam War film, but it's also a film about Heart of Darkness, right? Yeah, it's, it's, Heart of Darkness. Yeah, it's Heart of Darkness for, you know, it's a retelling for Vietnam. of Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Which is a very interesting thing. I actually just read Heart of Darkness, and there's a lot of interplay mm-hmm. as Africa is a dark continent. Now it's Vietnam as a dark country so uh we'll get to that in two years when we get there right but (laughs) you're right it does it has lost a little bit and i think i felt that way a lot when i had seen it when i was younger and now i think i start to see a little bit more about it well right and i think i think you're right it's the sort of saturation of war films i mean we're obsessed with war americans are obsessed with war films so it is hard to sort of discern this we're a nation birthed by war yeah definitely and constantly embroiled in you know i mean the, the, our national identity is wrapped up in rebellion in fighting and even when we're in times of peace it comes down to like well if we have no one external to fight then who the fuck are we supposed to fight if we're a nation of rebels right mm-hmm. so yeah I, I i think maybe it gets drowned out 
is the problem. Sure. So let's move on to our second question. Ethan, what do we owe to this film? Uh, you're, maybe you're better served to answer this one before I have anything to say. <laughs> okay, yeah. So what do we owe to this film? I think it is a very good compilation mm-hmm. of some of the important Vietnam tropes. And I don't see tropes as negative in this sense. Yeah. I mean them as positive as moments of this war that need to be captured for good or for ill. Yeah. And as we mentioned multiple times already, I think Platoon does a great job of taking all the terrible things. It's not so concerned with beauty so much, this film. Right. But I think that's just not the thrust of the argument that Stone is putting forth. He's trying to show you the denigration or degradation of people within the war. And I think he captures that effectively. So what do we owe this film? We owe some of these really, well, they're really taboo tropes in terms of rape and violence and killing of innocence that people really abuse a lot, but can also be done very well Yeah. Uh, to sort of illustrate the post-lapsarian society that whatever director is trying to capture. So we owe a lot to this film, as I mentioned earlier, because it sort of situates itself in this point where Vietnam War narrative history fiction whatever is coming of age yeah the people who experience these things are now able to talk about it Mm -hmm. in a very sophisticated manner that has value to the rest of us yes and i think you put it really well when you talked about how like this before tim o'brien's things they carried collection is put together and and sort of sold It, it it does feel very much like a film version of a lot of what tim o'brien is getting at before mm-hmm. he puts it all together and says, here's my novel. So, yeah. So, I think it, it does feel sort of very paving the way for that. And, I mean, what comes before this in terms of Vietnam narratives? I mean, there's MASH. And I haven't seen the film, but the television show, which is very light. Well, MASH is Korea. Oh, you're right. That is Korea. Never mind. Fuck it. But you, but MASH is very important to talk about. The film MASH is on this list as well, but I'm more familiar with the TV yeah, show. Me too. And that has, you know, the, the serious treatment of war and not really the war itself, whereas Platoon really is focused a lot on the firefights right, and things, yeah. about just the issues of the war, the ripple effects, if you will, mm-hmm. of the war. So this is that's made this possible, uh, made the other things like that possible. Full Metal Jacket, obviously, is in this conversation, yeah. and Apocalypse Now. So all of these things are made possible and are sort of all really intermingled because you've got Stone, who has influenced the success, really, of Tim O'Brien because the visual media has been carrying the the textual one, so to speak. Yeah. Although all of Stone's ideas seem to come mostly from O'Brien, although there's not any rape in O'Brien, that comes from Heinemann's stories. Mm-hmm. So you actually get a lot of intermingling. There's some Philip Caputo in there, although Caputo was a uh, not enlisted, he was an officer. Tobias Wolf also has a Vietnam War story. Mm-hmm. So all of these things really envelop one another because in weird ways they are in conversation and allowing the other ones to have that space to speak i i agree and our last question is does this film hold up um you know thematically and sort of narrative wise yes i want to point out this film won best sound editing and perhaps it was just the version that i watched but i was it's a loud movie. No, the sound sound is bad. The sound is bad. Okay, in this thank film. you. You agree. Uh, and I was talking to my friend, who's a PhD student here, who does 20th century lit, and we were talking about this because I was like, "Yeah, I just watched Platoon and we're podcasting," and he was like, "The sound is fucking awful." And I was like, "It was. It was so bad. It's like yeah. the guns are pew pew pew." 
and you can't hear anything. It just, I can't believe mm-hmm. it won best sound editing. And even the the sort of the the score, I guess, the soundtrack. You know, the sort of music that the characters can't hear. There's a special word for it, and I can't remember it now. But yeah, the, even that was kind of like a little melodramatic and felt almost out of place. So right, and the acting isn't that great either. I would argue a lot no. of it. So on a very sort of basic level, I would say it kind of doesn't really hold up maybe just in terms of quality although i mean i'm sure there's lots of constraints with with oliver stone but but at the same time you know in terms of vietnam stories vietnam narratives yes it does in terms of action movies maybe to go harken back to 14 year old you not really and maybe even just big epic films there are better made epic films right so i want to agree with all the things you say about sound everything you say about the character's line sometimes coming off is very, very forced, especially when they're being, you know, utterly deplorable people to one another. Those often feel fake and not very, you know, real. Sure. But I think I sort of disagree with this holding up as a Vietnam story, but I don't think I'm saying this for a wrong reason that this doesn't hold up. I think it's because there has been so much development of thought, mm-hmm. so much sophistication in articulation of the Vietnam story that I think this film to me anyway, who's been enmeshed in this stuff, academically speaking uh, for a very long time, that a lot of these things, these voiceovers by Chris come off as sort of hokey because they are so in your face. There's very little nuance to them and they get the point across, but I think it makes it too obvious where a lot of the trend now with the Vietnam War fiction, or rather war fiction in general, I'm speaking to the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts as well, that it's not so self-evident anymore. They're more withholding of this capital T truth that we think we have Mm -hmm. license to. And I think it's better for it because we're recognizing ambivalence and allowing it to really rest on the reader to find what salvation they want to find in those. So I think this is a little too obvious, especially toward the end. Like I didn't need that last voiceover about Chris (laughs) being a child of both these sergeants because it's, it's immensely clear to me at that point. It's heavy handed. So I think it doesn't hold up in that sense, but I think it's a good thing because it was able to pave the way for these very sophisticated thoughts about war. Yeah. And I think that's perhaps why this film shifted in, number there are better war fa- and and certainly i i mean when they first compiled the list i believe it was before things like saving private ryan and so even just that addition to the list changes the way we think about this i mean saving private ryan is a better war movie than this i i would argue well we'll have to reserve our opinions until we, until get, we there. get there you're right <laughs> well speaking of getting there we actually have a movie two weeks from now and it is a night at the opera 1935 yes that is a marx brothers film yes and next week we have a couple things we have our rundown part three rundown part three and over on patreon which you can go to patreon backslash spoilers cast to support us for five dollars a month you get bonus episodes you won't have to listen to us every other week you can listen to us every single week every week if you can't get enough of us you can hear me talk shit at matt every week and he does that on the phone all the time so you (laughs) might have to find some way to monetize that but on patreon next week we're going to put up uh, an episode of a film that is recently out in redbox and you know i'm going to call it right now i haven't decided this until this moment i think we're going to do moana oh okay which was not 
the best animated film of the year that went to Zootopia. But I hear Moana was, people think it was robbed. I'm a very big fan of Zootopia. So I'm going to tackle Moana and see if that's justified or not. All right. It's a bit of a shift for us. Something a bit light of a shift. And fun. Yeah. Light and fun after Platoon. I think we need a little bit of that cleanse, right? Yeah, I think you're right. So we should thank again our Patreon supporters. And we should. And I want to suggest to everybody who enjoys listening to us to check out our Patreon. It's only $5 a month. And you can throw us $5 one month. And, you know, if, if you want to come back a couple months later and throw us another 5 bucks, you get access to all that stuff again. Yes, and that money is not going to beer and prostitutes. It's actually going to things like storing our episodes online so they can exist in perpetuity in licensing our awesome theme music and allowing us to rent these films, actually, because that's actually not that uh, not that negligible of a price. Right. Speak for yourself, Matt, about the beer and prostitutes, but... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, Disclaimer. Yeah, no. Ethan will not spend this money on beer and prostitutes. I promise I won't. Yeah, it, it goes straight back into continuing to do the good stuff you enjoy to creating the content you enjoy listening to but until then i've been matt Pizzell. and i am ethan knight and there will be spoilers there will be spoilers it's a sad one today there will be spoilers is hosted by matt Pizzell and me ethan knight it's produced each week by matt Pizzell. Our artwork is by Becca Knight. You can find her on Twitter at Becca the Knight. Our great music was produced and created by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can check him out all over the internet. You can always find us on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can find us on Patreon if you would like to support us for only $5 a month, also at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Our email continues to be spoilerscast at gmail.com, so send us some complaints hate mail and maybe a compliment or two remember please subscribe to us on soundcloud itunes or stitcher and we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on itunes it really helps thank you so much will you do me a favor and stop yelling my name all over this restaurant do i go around yelling your name Mr. Driftwood. Say, is your voice changing or is somebody else paging me around here? Mr. Driftwood. Why, Mrs. Claypool, hello. Mr. Driftwood, you invited me to dine with you at 7 o'clock. It is now 8 o'clock and no dinner. What do you mean, no dinner? I just had one of the biggest meals I ever ate in my life. And no thanks to you, either. I've been sitting right here since 7 o'clock. Yes, with your back to me. When I invite a woman to dinner, I expect her to look at my face. That's the price she has to pay. You check, sir. $9.40? This is an outrage. If I were you, I wouldn't pay it. Now then, Mrs. Claypool, what are we going to have for dinner? You've had your dinner. All right, we'll have breakfast. Waiter? Yes, sir. Have you uh, got any milk-fed chicken? Yes, sir. Well, squeeze the milk out. I want to bring me a glass. Yes, sir. Mr. Driftwood, three months ago, you promised to put me into society. In all that time, you've done nothing but draw a very handsome salary. You think that's nothing, huh? How many men do you suppose are drawing a handsome salary nowadays? Why, you can count them on the fingers of one hand, my good woman. I'm not your good woman. Don't say that, Mrs. Claypool. I don't care what your past has been. To me, you'll always be my good woman, because I love you.